You served 23 years. 23 years, two months. But who's counting you, months? Yeah. I mean, you do. You know as well as <laughs> I do. do. You do. Richard Midkiff is a remarkable story. He kind of met me in the middle of the struggle I was going through and they were trying to send me back to prison. He's someone that found a way to rehabilitate himself. If it's two minutes after midnight on your 18th birthday, you're getting life without parole. He made the decision to do that and he lives his life like that. And essentially this bill is my story. But he works hard every day to help individuals who are in need of help. He started recording fathers reading children books to their kids. So vicariously, he was reliving this through his child. I get up every day and I ask myself, do I love what I'm doing? In today's world, criminals come in all shapes and sizes, but they all have one thing in common. They all have criminal thoughts. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about crimes committed by the youth, by minors. We've got a former juvenile offender, Richard Mitkiff. He was convicted of second degree murder. He's going to be joining us to talk about some of his past, what he's doing currently, and those minors who are offenders. But first, Let's see what our producer, Brian, has for us. The first story this week is coming straight out of Capitol Hill. Everybody's talking about Jamie Diamond, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO and chairman. He was on Capitol Hill yesterday talking about Bitcoin. Let's hear what he had to say. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc. You pointed out the only true use case for it is criminals, drug traffickers, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance. And that is a use case uh, because it is somewhat anonymous, not fully, and because you can move money instantaneously and because it doesn't go through, as you mentioned, all these systems have built up over many years, you know your customers, sanctions, OFAC, it's, they can get bypass all of that. I, if I was the government, I'd close it down. Well, sure. I, I guess Jamie Dimon just wants to piss everyone in the crypto industry off. You know, he, he talks about crypto having a criminal use case. And I've got to be honest with you, when, when cryptocurrency first appeared, that was its real use case. Ross Ulrich, he was the founder of Silk Road One. The only payment he accepted was Bitcoin. And that absolutely gives the beginning of the Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency industry that we see today. Now, that being said, just because cryptocurrency has a beginning and origin as a criminal use does not mean that it's always going to be that way. As it becomes more ubiquitous, we find other uses for crypto, and we're seeing that today. Jamie Dimon, let's be honest, he's the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. He doesn't like crypto because... It is fighting the battle against currency. You know, he uses the excuse, well, you know, at least with with banks and traditional financial institutions and currency as we know it now, we can track people. We have know your customer, KYC, things like this. The truth of the matter is, is that right now, and as far as history goes right now, setting up fake bank accounts, either as mule accounts or drop accounts for stolen money or anything else like that, it's never been easier than it is right now. KYC largely is a joke. 
And Jamie Dimon knows that. He just doesn't want crypto to be a competitor. So he's taking advantage of it right now. And because we've got Binance that's in trouble, we've got FTX. You know, Sam Bankman has been convicted. He's going to serve a lot of time. We've got all that going on. And Jamie Dimon is capitalizing on it. And got to be honest with you, I don't have a lot of respect for the man. Brian? This week, I have a story for you out of my neck of the woods in California. A Sacramento man arrested after getting caught tampering with gift cards at Target. The discovery happened during Operation Bad Elf. Undercover officers were placed at Target stores in Sacramento to help curb retail theft. During one of their operations last week, investigators noticed a man acting suspiciously at a gift card rack. Authorities say the suspect was taking cards off the rack, doing something to them, and then putting them back on the rack. Officers confronted Ning Ning's son outside of the store and found 5,000 Target and Apple gift cards inside of his car. Back to you, Brett. So gift card fraud, we are in the holiday season. And one of the biggest gifts that's given around or given to people are gift cards, of course. And, and here's the thing. Gift cards tend to just be on shelves. The security of the store does not look at them because they do not have value until you take them to the cash register and actually place value on those cards. So they don't really pay attention to what's going on. It's very easy for a criminal to go in, take the cards off the rack, record the numbers on them or swipe the track data that's on the back of the card, any number of things like that, put them back on the rack. Wait until some unsuspecting customer buys that card, places value on the card, and then the criminal steals the money from that. Because of that, what I advise people to do, especially during this holiday season, be aware of your environment. Understand that that type of fraud is not only common, but it's very profitable and very easy for criminals to commit. So if you're going to buy gift cards, do it online. If you're not doing it online, do not pick up those cards at the counter or at the register that it's just the card that's sitting there. Make sure that it's in proper packaging. Make sure you examine the packaging to make sure that it's not been pilfered or opened or it's not altered in any way. More than anything, be safe out there. Be vigilant. Be aware of everything that's going on and the potential of fraud. Because when you're not aware, when you've not got that situational awareness that's high like that, you will be taken advantage of. Today's episode, we're talking about youths who commit crime, and I have some history with that. I began my life of crime at 10 years old, 10. Um, I was in Eastern Kentucky. My mom was a fraudster. I started stealing food so that me and my sister could eat. And from there, my life of crime kind of blossomed. Uh, I do not blame, I do not blame my parents for my choices as an adult. Those choices are mine. But here's the truth of the matter. When you're a child, you cannot help what the adults in your circle are doing. You're going to do what they're doing. More than that, though, more than that, you need to understand that a child, a male especially, their brains are not fully formed until they're in their 20s sometimes. If you're someone like me, probably until you're in your 40s. Seriously, what I'm saying is, is that children lack the capacity to make a rational decision. Now, granted, most children do not go out and commit crime. Some of them do. And and today I'm bringing in Richard Midkiff. Richard Midkiff is an outstanding human being. He absolutely is. But when Richard was younger, he was a juvenile offender. So I'm going to bring Richard in. We're going to talk about that. And it just so happens that today I had no idea about it. But today, 
Ethan Crumbly is being sentenced for the murders that he committed in Michigan. He was 15 years old. This happens two years ago. He was 15 years old. His parents bought him a weapon. He takes the weapon to school and he murders four classmates. Today he's being sentenced. He's looking at a sentence of life without parole. And I've got to be honest with you. I don't uh, I don't think I'm okay with that. I really don't. I, I absolutely am horrified that four children were murdered. But I'm, I, I don't know what justice is supposed to look like when you give a child life without parole. Um, I was very fortunate yesterday that Richard Midkiff reached out to me. Uh, we were just had a, had a conversation about how life was going. And I asked him, I was like, would you like to come on the show? And he said, yes. And, and he's, he's written this bill that talks about justice for juvenile offenders. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about some of Richard's uh, story as well. Um, Richard is an, as I said before, he's an outstanding person. He, he turned his life around completely. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to do. It takes an active decision to do that. And I need, you guys need to understand when I, when I talk about that, that's a hard thing to do. If you're brought up in an environment like I was of crime and fraud, you tend to, to stay along that path because that's a path of comfort. You know, it's, it's when you decide to veer off that path to do the right damn thing that there's a lot of fear, a lot of discomfort. You don't know if you're going to succeed. And, you know, I, I, I had a lot of help with that. Richard was able to do that while being incarcerated, and that makes it even more difficult. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Richard Midkiff on and we're going to talk about some of these things and, and just see where the conversation goes. Richard Midkiff, thank you so much for coming on Criminal Thoughts. Thank you, Brett. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure to meet with you again. This is our second interview. It is, man. It, it is. is. You know, I met you when um, how long had you been out of prison when I met you? Uh, about 11 to 12 months. You kind of met me in the middle of the struggle I was going through and they were trying to send me back to prison. Right now. Now, and just so the audience uh, knows who you are, could you walk us through and, and we don't need every step by step because I, I don't want the show to be about your crime. Right. But if you could if you could just give like a brief uh, synopsis of what happened and the sentencing mm -hmm. and we go from there. OK. So I'll give a brief synopsis. When um, in 1996, I drove my co-defendant to rob a drug dealer. And as Brett was saying, uh, youth, especially young boys and young men, the frontal lobes in their brains don't fully develop till about the age of 26. And mine and Brett's case, 35, 40, something <laughs> like that. Um, so we received a sentence of 38 years in the Department of Corrections. My co-defendant received six months more because he was the actual perpetrator of the crime. Fast so forward. So you were sentenced. And how old were you at this point in time, Richard? When I was sentenced, I was 22. We spent a few years in the county jail fighting because when we were first arrested, they were actually seeking the death penalty on both of us. And you were a and minor at this point when, when the felony was, was committed. I was 19 when it happened. Okay. My co-defendant was 17. Okay. Um. What happened to prevent that was the United States Supreme Court made a ruling in Roper saying that it was an Eighth Amendment violation to execute a juvenile offender. And that's kind of where all of these new juvenile laws stem from, because for the last hundred years, how do you sentence a juvenile? Do you give them a long sentence? Do you give them a short sentence? Do we put them in a diversion program? Do we not? So Roper came out, death penalty is off the table. 
Then we were facing some life sentences for the crime. We were charged with second degree murder, armed robbery, armed burglary, and aggravated assault. And, you know, it's the transferable intent that happens in felony murder is just so crazy to me because I was sitting a block and a half down the road in the car, had no idea, had no control, had no participation in the actual felony that was committed that resulted in death. But based on the law in Florida, had I gone to trial and the state's burden is only to prove that a felony was committed. And the jury's burden is to convict me of first degree murder. Judge has no decision. I get life without parole. And, and I'm story. guessing so. So just just to 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 clarify, and you were mm-hmm. in the car. You you were not the trigger man at all. Mm-hmm. Guy goes in. Uh, what was the motive for the? Uh, it was robbery. What were what, what was the guy trying to steal? He was trying to steal drugs. Okay, trying to steal drugs. He shoots the drug dealer, mm-hmm. and because you were in the car and and basically the wheel man, they mm-hmm. were like, "Hey, you were involved in it. You're as guilty as this other guy who actually pulled Absolutely. the trigger." Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um. That so you were looking at at the death penalty, then looking at life in prison. Mm-hmm. How did they land on 38 years? So what happened, we went to pretrial and my judge asked the state what pleas have been offered. And the state kind of laughed and said, there's no pleas. I mean, he has a slam dunk conviction. Um, so the judge told him, you're going to offer a deal, something other than life. Okay. And what they originally did is they did a range of 35 to 55 with the opportunity for counsel to mitigate in between. And that night when my attorney came out and he told me, I was like, well, tell him I'll plea open to the bench. Right. And my attorney said, um, the state's not going for that because they knew the judge did not agree with this sentencing scheme. He did not believe that it was shown any mercy or giving myself and my co-defendant an opportunity to show where we've learned from our mistakes and grown. True, somebody somebody was killed. And I live with that every day and and I, I carry that. Right. And I did not think that I did not deserve punishment, but did I deserve to get out of prison when I was 52 years old? Right. In a strange turn of events, in 2000, my co-defendant went back to court on a mitigation hearing. And the state state argued, said, wait, judge, this is a violation of the quid pro quo agreement with Midkiff. We have a deal. This defendant has to have a longer sentence per the victim's family's request because he actually committed the crime. The judge mitigated his sentence. They appealed it to the 50 CA. The 50 CA created new precedent for mitigation hearings, okay. saying, one, if you take a plea, you can't backdoor the plea by filing mitigation. Two, the DCA ruled that this is also a violation of the quid pro quo contract with Midkiff. So that was in 2000. They put his sentence back up. For the next 18 years, everything my co-defendant tried to do, they used me as a roadblock. For the next 18 years? For the next 18 years. Um, 2010, the United States Supreme Court made the ruling on Graham versus Florida. And it's fascinating when you think about Graham versus Florida and you really look at it, They get into the brain science and they say that juvenile offenders are completely different from their adult counterparts. They're more susceptible to transient behavior, Mm -hmm. peer pressure, irrational thoughts, irrational behavior. And to give a 14-year-old a life without parole sentence and a 35-year-old a life without parole sentence, this 14-year-old is going to serve a substantial amount more time. So so So, just just to be clear, there's actually a, a, 
a court case on record that people yes. are supposed to go by that that recognizes yes. that juveniles are different than adults and and not just mentally diff different, but physically different, that the, yes. that the brain lobes themselves are not fully formed. The frontal lobes haven't developed yet. OK. And and it, it's for me, I'm, I'm coming this I'm coming from Florida right now. And the case was ruled it was Graham versus Florida. And you think about it, at the time of this ruling, there were 133 juvenile offenders sentenced to life without parole in the entire United States. 133. 77 of them right here in Florida. 77 in Florida. And so juveniles are categorically different. And some states have been very progressive, like California raised the age limit to 21. Okay. Florida still is stuck at, if you're a, if, if it's two minutes after midnight on your 18th birthday, you're getting life without parole. Gotcha. And and it it doesn't change anything. You're still a kid. You're you're still a minor. So going past that, then the US Supreme Court made a ruling in Miller versus Alabama and says, wait, even juveniles who committed homicide cannot just outright be given a murder sentence. There first has to be a mitigation hearing and to see if they're amenable to rehabilitation, are they so irrevocably broken that they can't re-enter society? Right. So they had to go back and re revisit all of these sentences. And they so, so let me ask you, reviews. and th this is a term that, that we're going to get into that, mm -hmm. but what does irrevocably broken mean when we're talking legalese? So in a lot of terms, because a lot of these kids that I fought for while I was in prison to get back, they were in their 50s. They caught their life sentences as juveniles back in the 80s, but because it was held retroactive, they were still viewed as a child. Okay. And when you go back under 921 in Florida, there's a list of different things that the court has to consider. Uh, what was their childhood like? Did they have a rough upbringing? They get a, a social worker, they get a mitigation specialist, they get all these things to look in to what their childhood was like, but then they also look into what you did while you were in prison. Did you go okay. in prison and continue to conduct yourself in a, a criminal mindset manner, going to going to confinement, going to um, CM, get, joining gangs, doing stuff like this? And the ones that they see are irrevocably broken are the ones that they say they are not amenable to reenter society. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate because in many prisons, they're not set up for rehabilitation. And right. I, I don't really I don't really believe in that term rehabilitation to rehabilitate somebody means to take them back to a former state they knew. Right. And a lot of people didn't knew that, know that myself going into prison with no education, being homeless when I was a teenager, being on drugs, I had to be habilitated. I had to learn something new and apply that stuff to my life so I could be effective while I was in prison and be effective when I got out because my mindset was 2028, I'm getting out. Right. So, so let me ask you, Richard, um, mm -hmm. you, you just alluded to it a second ago, that, that mm -hmm. idea of rehabilitation, of taking you back yeah. to a, to a healthy state. Yeah. And you know, as well as I do, I mean, you were, you were locked up a lot longer than I was. A lot of people have never experienced. Right. A healthy state. Uh, would you like to just go into some of the stuff of, about how your childhood was about yeah. that environment? Absolutely. So I grew up in a small town, Apopka, Florida. Um, my father was a vet 
fought in Korea. He passed away when I was four years old. He was 46 years old. My mom remarried and the man she remarried was abusive. He used to beat her. There was a lot of alcohol involved. My, I'm the youngest of six. Four of my older siblings were drug addicts and alcoholics themselves. Um, I found that transient behavior because, you know, a child is looking for affirmation. And if you're not getting it from home, you're going to get it somewhere. Right. And that's what I did. So my childhood, I suffered as a, a victim of child abuse. I was you know, put out of my home, had to figure out a way to eat. And like you were saying earlier, when you were a kid, you started out stealing food. Right. And I'm in school because when you're in eighth grade, what else do you do? You go to school. And, you know, I, I'm looking at the other kids and, you know, they have clothes, they have, you know, money, they have food. I don't have any of this. Right. So I got with the older crowd and it started with a little marijuana and then it just escalated. But you think you're in control and you smoke a little pot and then you're drinking. And the next thing you know, you're in the clubs, you're just doing everything. And um, it just led to a real unhealthy lifestyle for myself. And many, well, many child. other people. I mean, that, that's I what we need to remember. You're a child. Yeah. And yeah. as we know, as as the court accepts, children are not the same as adults. You don't have the capacity for fully rational thought. Right. But as a child having to make adult choices every day, it it gets it gets hard. Right. You know, it gets it gets very convoluted in your life because you're having to do this stuff to survive. And I've always wanted to survive. And when I was arrested, I made the first night I was arrested, I made that conscious decision that no matter what happens, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to be a better person. So so what caused you? And this is one of the things that I find really interesting because I, I had that same moment. It took me, you know, getting out of prison and screwing up again mm-hmm. for me to realize that and to make that decision. But but what caused you at that point to make that decision? The biggest thing with me, and I just spoke about this at another event, I was tired. I'd been, you know, running the streets for seven, eight years, um, using drugs, committing crimes, selling drugs, being involved in stuff, sometimes sleeping at friends' house, sometimes having a place to live. And I was just tired. I, I look back on my childhood and I was very gregarious as a kid. I always wanted to talk. I always wanted to laugh and smile and and the circumstances of my life. And I, I don't, I don't blame my family. You know, I, I look at it, they were doing the best that they could with what they had. And I don't know all of their traumas right. that they went through as children because it's generational it gets passed down. And I had to break that chain. And I realized everything that I had done previous to that, I'd been able to like slip the jab and, and get away with and things like that. But this, you don't, there's, there's no, there's no sweeping this under the rug. Right. And I, I just made that choice and I went in there and spent three years in the county jail, pretty much just reading and working on myself. And then when I got into the department of corrections, that's when I, I just really dug in. I spent all my time in the library, learning, teaching myself and um, eventually taught myself how to invest in the stock market, trade options, wrote some books on option trading created some strategies. And then I got into the law library and became a law clerk. And that's kind of fun, where I found my niche. You know, I was okay. like, cause most people get in the law library in prison cause they want to work on their case. Right. I had, I had nothing to work on. 
but it intrigued me to read these books and, and look at this and learn this. So I started, you know, started my craft and, and growing on that. And it um, definitely paid off because that's what I do for a living now. Continue so how long, you, how long were you in the prison law library? Um, I was in the, worked in the actual prison law library from 2007 till 2019 when I was released early. And so you would, you would help other inmates file appeals, whatever type of paperwork they needed, stuff like that. Yeah. A lot of people have a misconception about prison law libraries. They think people just come there to work on their criminal case, but you have child support issues, you have probate issues, you have people liquidating assets. And so I I learned a lot of different things, but my wheelhouse was in post-conviction appellate and, and federal habeas corpus. So let me ask you, how many, uh, I know you may not know the number, but how many inmates do you think that you helped during those years at law library? Probably a couple thousand <laughs> at least. <laughs> I, um, so the, the way it goes in there, our job is to assist and, you know, some things are real little, but then there are bigger cases that I would take that would take up time. I normally worked about 50 cases a year oh, wow. in, in either the circuit district or federal court. Okay. You make the decision, change your I, life. You I make uh, the decision. You do three years in county, mm-hmm. get to the uh, actual prison system, start working in the law library. What other types of steps did you take toward uh, rehab at that point? So I'm, I'm, I'm really big on personal development. I had a very good rapport with the staff, the administration, and because it's hard to keep a library supervisor, I ended up being the supervisor a lot of times in there. And um, the first thing I, I wanted to do something to change other people's lives. Right. So the first thing I did is I created Storytime Dads, and they allowed me to have a, a video recorder sent in. I got DVDs sent in, books sent in, and we started recording fathers reading children books to their kids. Ah. And and I learned I was I was sitting in a room, and this was like the head blood on the compound, right? Scary dude, you know. <laughs> Mouthful of gold, tattoos on the face. You see him, you cross the street. Right. You know? And he was him and hauling. He's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I was like, bro, it's just me and you in here. It's for your kid. And so let's just run through it. We won't here. The camera's over here. Let's just run through it. Just read it. And we went through it, went through it. Then I was like, All right, you ready? It's showtime. So got him on there. And I'm watching him. And as he's reading, it's like I could see the tattoos fall off his face. Oh, I could man. see the gold fall out of his mouth. And what I started to see is the child in him come out and I realized something. He never had a children's book read to him as a child. So vicariously, he was reliving this through his child. Sure. The same guy, it was a, you know, like a couple months later, because we did the recording in October for Christmas. So I was at visit with uh, my family and friends and this little girl comes up and she tugs my leg and I got a little baby in my arms. And I was like, hey, sweetheart, you okay? She's like, yeah. I was like, do you need something? She said, no, I just wanted to thank you for making it so my daddy could read to me. <laughs> you, Everybody was crying. I was, <laughs> um, But that kind of set me on the path where I was going, working in the law library, helping people with their legal needs. But I wanted to give some social value to people. So we, my, my mentor, Dr. Manal Fakori, who started the Toastmaster groups at the prison, 
we partnered up and we started the Sage program, which stood for such a great experience. Okay. And, you know, you have a lot of faith-based programs in prison and, and I love that, but I felt like we needed something that was strictly personal development. So we started running these classes, have volunteers from the community. We started teaching real estate, finance, philosophy, um, reflective listening, networking like a pro. And this networking like a pro is what I used to not go back to prison. It was okay. a class that uh, Dr. Fakori taught. So networking like a pro, the first assignment we had was write down on a piece of paper, who is somebody you know that's influential? and pick a, a industry that you could get to. Well, at the time, I, I didn't know a lot of people, but um, my attorney, Mark O'Mara, is rather influential. He's worked some big cases. He handled the Zimmerman case, mm -hmm. and he's an analyst for CNN. So I was like, okay, I know Mark O'Mara. He's an analyst for CNN. I could get to one of the top executives through Mark if I needed to. So that, that planted the little seed and when I went through my struggle that you and I met on, I sat down and I was like, okay, who do I know? And I'd met some people since I've been out working with NYU School of Law, working with uh, Senator Keith Perry and some other people. Mm -hmm. I just started writing names and just started connecting the dots. And they contacted other people. And next thing you know, I meet Brett. He does an amazing interview on me and so many people got behind me and supported me. And I tell people that networking like a pro is so important because, you know, life and advancing and, and doing something, it's all about relationships, right? There's no John Rambo's in the world. You know, everybody who is successful has a team and, and that builds upon that. So that's what the networking like a pro is probably one of my favorite classes. Um, it helped. So I was, I'm doing these programs and 2018, I don't really do like new year's resolutions. I do goals. You know, this okay. is my goal for this year. So for four years, I'd been fighting for clemency and 2018, I said, you know what? I'm not going to worry about that. It's filed. Everything's there. What I'm going to do is work on being the best version of me that provides the best legal work I can and the best programs that I can. And it was a few months later, a staff member was looking up something on the internet and she pulled up this inmate and said, do you know him? He's a real jerk. I said, no, but look up this person. And it was my co-defendant and he was out. Okay. And he I was almost out. had a heart, he was out. So okay. I was like, I couldn't breathe. I was like, you know, just, just paused. And um, I filed my motion and I've done thousands of motions. I. I went, I went back to the law library. I, I sat down, I wrote my motion out. I sent it to one of my attorneys. They filed judge Brandon in 24 hours. Never seen that before. And, and, and just to backtrack because the sentencing, when you were both sentenced, part of that sentencing was, Hey, this guy has to get yes. more time than yep. you. So you see he's out and you know, Hey, I'm supposed I'm to be out home. too. Yeah. yeah. And I find out later when they were doing this, the state attorney he had said, wait a minute, this isn't fair to Midkiff. We're, we, we need to revisit this. But because the way they have it sectioned out, because he went back under judicial review for juvenile resentencing, there's a prosecutor assigned to that. Ah. And that's the prosecutor he got. When I went back, I just went back under a, a newly discovered evidence, 
slash uh, specific performance of the plea slash manifest injustice slash illegal sentence. And it went to the post-conviction prosecutor. So I got a different prosecutor assigned to my case. And we go to my first hearing and everybody thinks I'm coming home because that's what should have happened. And he argued it. And we argued it. He argued, he argued against it. He said, I don't, I don't have a deal. (sighs) Even though my co-defendant and I were sentenced side by side in the courtroom together. And you look, there's a, there's a standard. It's a state habeas corpus in Florida under Florida statute 79.01. And it's a manifest injustice. And essentially what that means is no judge under any body of law could hand down the sentence. So when we were sentenced together, there's no way the judge could have given him a shorter sentence than me because it was written into his plea that he must serve a longer sentence. Ah, so that that's where the, that's where my right came from. And when we went to our final hearing and argued it, the state said, well, there was no way to know back then that this law would change, but that doesn't change the underlying plea agreement. And, you know, a lot of the players that like the judge, my original prosecutor, they had both passed away. And the only people that were at that sentencing in that courtroom that day were me and Mark O'Mara. Oh, wow. And and we spoke about that, you know, like, look, we, we were there. Right. You know, we knew what it was. So go through the hearing, judge reserves ruling and uh, send me back to prison. Send you back you, to prison. You want to talk about frustrated? Yeah. I'm watching this guy. He's home and I, I'm happy for him. You know, I'm no ill will, anything. I'm very happy for him, but I wanted to go home. I wanted to see my right. family. And um, I got emergency release June 19th, 2019. Okay. And it was a Friday and um, going through the whole process and I'm up in classification. The state said, or the, the state, the classification officer says, Hey, we might have a problem. Like, what do you mean? The state filed a stay. They wanted to stay my release pending the outcome of the appeal. And uh, so I went back to the dorm, called my attorney. He's like, no, no, she denied it. You're getting out today. Okay. And I was released that day. But in the back of my mind, I've got this appeal hanging over my head. Yeah, that's a so, weight. Yeah. So it's like I, I had one foot out and one foot in still, not knowing what was going to happen. So when I came home, I hit the ground running. Right. You know, speaking at FSU, got plugged in with NYU, became an advisor to them, doing the work I do, set up my business. And um, and I, I just want to point out, and, and mm-hmm. this, you know, I know this from when we talked before, mm-hmm. but you had a lot of people, a lot of yes. important people yes. that had recognized that you did exactly what you were supposed to do in prison. You you prison is not about rehabilitation. You found a way yeah. to rehabilitate yourself and people recognize that. And here you are with this weight hanging over you. And you've got a lot of people out there mm-hmm. in your corner backing you, wanting to say, hey, this guy's doing the right thing. He's he's a good guy. Yeah. Well, as, as you remember, my former warden had made the, the comment to some media outlets that this is what corrections is supposed to look like. Right. How I came out and she and I are great friends to today. We till today, we still talk all the time and do stuff. She's uh, retired now, but she still goes back into the prison to help. Okay. It's a a, a fascinating lady. Um, So as you know, the DCA overturned my case Mm -hmm. and that started like a hundred day run to try to prevent them from sending me back. And the outpouring of support that I got from not only the state, 
the nation, but around the world. Right. You know, people, people got involved. Um, and, I, you know, I asked myself after that, why would that happen? You know, what it, it legally, it doesn't make sense to me because of all the precedent from the mitigation to this. And then for them to say, well, you never had a deal. Right. And, and I, I thought about it and maybe, maybe I'm too much of a glass half full type of guy, but I went through that whole struggle. And I think that the reason I went through it was to meet the people and build the relationships I built to continue to help people in the capacity and space that I am now. And as you know, you know, I, I ended up prevailing. I was resentenced again. Right. And, um, and now I'm, I'm secure, I'm free and trying work to as my a paralegal, best yes. I work. I work as a paralegal consultant. I have a company called RSMC consulting. Okay. And I work with a consortium of, of attorneys who specialize in post-conviction and appellate. And I also do some prison consulting and mentoring at the, um, work release center over in Ocala. Yes, sir. So I, I definitely try my best to stay plugged in because one, it, it stays in the forefront of my mind not to do something stupid. I, right. I think my frontal lobes are fully developed. I'm 47 <laughs> now, but you know, we don't want you and be, I were slow on that, you know? Yeah. It took a while. <laughs> um, but that brings me to looking at the felony murder statue. You're, you're doing everything you need to do now. I mean, you're doing a fantastic yeah. job and I got to be you. honest with you. I, I tend to think I do a good job, but you eclipse me with the way that you reach out and try to help people. You truly do. And I just wanted to recognize that. Um, I appreciate it. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and I was talking with my producer before we before you came on, mm -hmm. you served 23 years, 23 years, two months, 23 years, two months. And um, but who's counting you, months? Yeah, I mean, you do. You know, as well as <laughs> I do. do, you do. So <laughs> when you got out, what are some of the things that had changed about society that really hit you? Everything. Everything. Um, but I, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. And I'm, you know, I, now I look at it, sometimes I see it and I, I laugh. So I get released. I'm living in Daytona Beach. Um, mm -hmm. Some people that usually give this little like um, suite to college students, Emory Riddle. Right. They left it open for me so I'd have a safe, secure place to go to transition out. My pastor lived in that town and um, my friends were great when, when I was released. They took me out, got me a laptop, got me everything I needed, took me and got me clothes. And um, so I'm sitting here at this bed and I have a laptop, I have a tablet, I have a cell phone. And I can't figure out how to get into any of them. <laughs> I am like... I can't get the password to work. I can't get on the phone to call my friend who helps set it up because I can't get into my cell phone. I can't get the tablet to work. So, and I'm, I'm looking, I don't see it here. Uh, I show it. Um, I grab my prison tablet and I put the headphones in, plug them in my ears and just start walking. Okay. And I walk through the neighborhood and, and you know, I'm just going to do this whole little circuit and I get to the corner and I hit the button for the, the crossing sign. It says, wait, don't walk. Freaked me all the way out. <laughs> you know, crossing signs, they didn't talk back then. Right. Um, but it, that, so that was a big thing. And I, I'd only been out like three days. But I think a lot, a lot of it was the technology. A lot of it was the culture. Right. Um, 
And, you know, when you, you know, as being in prison, it's, it's a controlled environment. It's like a mini community. Oh yeah. And, and the politics are heavy in there in right. prison and, and you got to navigate the waters if you, if you want to survive, but being, being out here with all of this different stuff going on, it was really sensory overload for me for a while. And I had spoken to a friend, he did like 25 years mm-hmm. and he said, listen, six months from now, you're not going to remember these first two months. And I really don't, it's all a blur. <laughs> so much is going on. And he said, you're, you're, you're going to have some issues and I don't care if it's one o'clock in the afternoon or one o'clock in the morning, you call me. And I remember it was like my fifth or sixth night out. I was sleeping and like two o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I had a panic attack because I'm used to sleeping in a bed that's three feet wide by six foot long. Right. And now I'm sleeping in a California King that's soft and has pillows and a nice blanket. And, and I woke up and I, I looked around. I didn't know where I was because right. I was so mentally conditioned from being in prison. And you know, in there you sleep light, you yeah. hear anything, you're instantly up. And, and I had this panic attack and it took me a minute and I grabbed my phone. I figured out how to use it, figured out how to get into everything. So I wasn't stranded. And I called my friend. He's like, take a deep breath. Tell me what's going on. So I, I, you know, talked to him and that helped me so much. So now whenever anybody I know gets out, mm-hmm. I tell them that same thing. I That's don't good. care when it is you call me and there, there's a group of us of about 10 of us that all did time together. And it's ironic because we're all business owners of one sort or another. So our goal is to one, always be there for people getting out. Right. Two, to always try to employ people that are formerly incarcerated because getting a job is almost impossible. Oh yeah. You can't get a job. I don't, I don't think people understand that you're not going to get a job. No, you're, you're not. And you know, like, I used to tell people that I'd come back for violation of probation. I can't get a job. I'm like, man, you can get a job. And then I get out of here and I say, no, you can't. It <laughs> yeah, is. It, yeah. You find out now, real quick. No. Uh-uh. They, they say, check the box and they give you an inch to explain why you were in prison. <sighs> I need a, I need a couple sheets of paper here. Right. Um, and the other thing we do, we get together every quarter and we have a lunch together and we talk about our plans, what we're going to do. And one of the things that we do is every quarter we go back into one of the work release centers and we take some pizzas, some sodas, take some footballs, basketballs, and then we talk to the guys. Okay. And, you know, because I believe that everybody that's being released from the Florida Department of Corrections should have to go through work release, just like in Fed, where they have to go through a halfway house. Right. And uh, Senator Perry spoke about that last year in the Criminal Justice Committee to uh, the Assistant Director to the Department of Corrections. Why are we not using work release more? And what they do is like myself, if I would have done, had to do all my time, I wouldn't have qualified for work release because I have a murder charge. And, you know, one of the lowest recidivism rates are people that commit murder, but you serve a lot of time and you are the, the ones that most need that transition period of a little more freedom where you're in a secure facility, but you get to wear street clothes and you get to go to work a job and save up some money and have something. But in Florida, you get released, you get $50. You don't even get a bus ticket. You just get $50. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. And what do you do with $50? I I go to, I go to, you know, convenience store with my nieces 
and that's fifty dollars. Right, right. You know, you, know, it, you, you it, were it, talking, um, you were talking about you guys getting together, mm-hmm. and that's one of the one of the real things that that really helped me. I um, I didn't have anybody that I could call. You know, when I got out, it, it was just me. You know, I I did that wake up in the bed one night too, and had no idea where the hell I was. And it, it freaks you out. It really does. Yeah. But what I did. You know, you're talking about that support group. That's exactly what you've got there. Yeah. I kind of manufactured mine. I got on LinkedIn and I, I reached out to every single law enforcement officer that would talk to me. And that was my initial support group or safety group. And uh, it helps, man. I, it not only helps, but I think it it's does. a necessity that you need something like that. Some people that that will look out for you. And today that that safety net or support group or whatever you want to talk, call it for me I mean, it, it's 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 almost like their family. They 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 get up with yeah. me. How are you doing, Brett? How are, is everything going all right? And constantly check on me and and care about me. And that's that makes all of the difference in the world when when you're you're coming out of prison. I mean, it's I really think it's something that that everyone needs at the end of the day, whether you're incarcerated or not. Yeah. Um, some of the work that you're doing, and, and you know, again, you called me. Yes, we talked yesterday on the phone, and. I was like, hey, would you like to come on the show? And you were telling me uh, about this bill that you've written for juvenile offenders. It, it's it's really interesting because I had no idea. I woke up this morning and uh, I, I like to say that I, I wake up every morning and I tune in to Fox News and CNN so I can start my day pissed off at everyone. But uh, I was watching the news this morning. And this I'm going to call him a child because that's what he is. Yes. This child, Ethan Crumbly, Mm -hmm. he's being sentenced today. He's being sentenced for murder back uh, in 2021. His parents had bought him a weapon. The child he's 15 at that point in time. He walks into the school and he murders four of his classmates. And today he's potentially being sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And um, I sat there watching that, Richard. And I got to be honest with you, man. I thought about you. I thought about me. I mean, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible Mm -hmm. thing to take the lives of four children. But he's a child. And I, I just, I don't know what's the right answer, but I know the wrong answer is to give this child life without the possibility of ever getting out. And I know that you've got to be thinking about this kind of stuff, too, because you've written a bill that addresses some of these problems. Would you like to talk about that? I would. And, you know, speaking about Ethan Crumbly, what he did was horrific. And I can't I can't imagine the the agony that the family's going through and the PTSD that the other students who were injured Right. have to live with and the other students who weren't injured, who lost their friends or classmates or anything. I, you know, it's truly horrific. And I, I, I think it's important when it comes to somebody like Ethan, who's a kid, the why. Why did he do this? What issues was he dealing with? What right. mental issues that were undiagnosed? I mean, we don't know. And I'm looking at the hearing now and they're, they're doing a Miller hearing on it. Um, I don't know what Michigan law is. I know Florida, when somebody does a, a Miller, when they do a Miller review, they set, if it's a murder charge, 
you get a judicial review after 20 or 25 years. Okay. And, and it's kind of akin to parole, even though they don't have parole in Florida anymore, but they bring you back and they look, what have you been doing? And then they make a decision. And, you know, unfortunately there's, you know, a case like this, even if they have judicial review, it's going to linger for a long time. I agree right. with you. I don't think a natural life sentence is the right sentence. I, I, I do believe that people should be punished for the crimes they commit. And right. it's a horrific crime and he should, he should go to prison, but he was 14, 15 years old. Did he, did he really have the capacity to understand what the, the consequences and ramifications are in doing something like this? And see, you I don't know, know the answer to that. Uh, I, I know, and I, I'm sure you've been reading some of it as well. I mean, his parents noticed as he was growing up, he, he tortured animals, which that is absolutely. That's a sign. That's a sign. That's, that's a sign. That's a sign that something bad is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But, you, you know, and, and you told me something, and I, I was like, because the parents bought this young man a gun. Right. And. You know, I, I didn't see what it was a handgun. He had it in his book bag. Um, but you have to ask yourself, if the parents see this, why would you why would you buy a kid a gun? Exactly. You know? And not only so, did they do that and know that he was you know, doing some of this stuff. But when the school interviewed the parents about the problems that the child was having at school, the parents did not say anything to the school administration yeah. about, hey, we bought this child a gun as well. Yeah. You know, so there's there's a lot, and I, I'm gonna. I, I now I'm interested. Now, you know, <laughs> now I'm interested. I, I want to know more. I want to know right. more, um, because it is fascinating to me when when somebody do, does something like this. And you know, like school shootings and, and mass shootings are, are are something that's that's happening, and it's scary. It you is. Know, I don't I don't know about you, but whenever I go in a place, I always sit where I can see the door. Always. I don't and know if that's I, uh, I don't know if that's for, uh, you know, a product of serving time or whatever, but I am not going to have my back to the door. Yeah, no, I, I don't do that. And I always look around. OK, there's an exit. There's an exit. You know, and and I think I think that's a, a product of not only doing time, but our, our youth and always always trying to be a step ahead of whatever the issue is. Always right. trying to be aware of your surroundings. Like you said earlier, be vigilant. And you have to be vigilant, especially in this day and age. And it, it's it's unfortunate. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, taking guns from people solves the problem. Right. I, I think pe- parents being responsible is part of the solution. Oh, I agree I, with that. I think people having proper training is part of the solution. I think that, you know, courses and, and background checks and, you know, the there's different things that can be done than what's being done in the, in the political realm right now. His parents have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. Mm-hmm. The first time this has ever happened. And as a matter of fact, the, the Michigan Supreme court in October of this year, they upheld those charges. So those parents are absolutely going to court for this. Um, I got to tell you my, my feeling on that is I'm okay with that. I know it sets a precedent, but the parents, there's got to be some responsibility on the parents' part. I agree with that. The because he's a child, and you as a parent, you should be a re- responsible parent, right? You know, you you should not 
buy your kid a gun. Now, some parents take their kids hunting, but obviously if he had this gun in his backpack, he didn't have a long rifle. He didn't have a 22, uh, you know, to go hunting for his first deer or right. rabbit or something like that. So there are some questions and, you know, I just, my, my, the, the transferable intent is what, what bothers me the most, you know, and, 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 and you, you know, could you, could you define that? So the audience knows what that is. Yeah. So, and, and I'll get into that more when I'm talking about the bill, like mm-hmm. in felony murder, like in my case, I was a minor participant in the crime. True. I drove the person there. True. I know he was going in to rob the guy. He didn't go in there guns blazing. They got in a fight. They struggled. The gun went off. Um, so even his act of committing murder was not an intentional murder. It wasn't, right. you know, something where he was trying to do it, but you take, you take somebody who is nowhere near there or had no idea that this was going to transpire and you transfer some of that criminal intent to them. Okay. And, and that's, that's kind of what I see now. It's a little different in my opinion, because he is a minor. They did buy the gun for him. And even let's just say they bought him a, a small caliber, you know, pistol, a 380 or something like that. First off, you don't give a, a, a child a, a, a semi-automatic weapon. That's, right. That's out. But if you are doing that and you're teaching them how to shoot properly and you're taking them to shooting range, then that gun should be secured with a trigger lock and you should have control over it. And he should only be able to use it when you're going target practicing or something like that. Right. You know, a 15 year old kid living with his mom and dad shouldn't have a, a 380 sig under his pillow. That's, right. you know, something, whatever the situation is. And like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to dig into it and, and try to learn some more about it. Cause it is kind of fascinating to me. Um, and again, I don't know much about Michigan law, so sure, sure. I don't know what I understand the writing of it, but you right. know, their statues are vastly different from ours here in Florida. And, and, you know, again, it, it's kind of, it's interesting to me that, that we we are doing this show right as this ha- is happening because you have this bill mm-hmm. that you've written about juvenile offenders and the justice systems. So can you talk about that bill for a little bit? Absolutely. So the, the bill I wrote is called the Young Adult Offender Minor Participant Mitigation Act. And several people have worked on this with me. Uh, Mark, Mark O'Mara from O'Mara Law Group and I have gone over it and looked at different ways to tweak it. I originally wrote it challenging or trying to amend the the murder statute 782.04. And Mark said, well, that's not going to work here in Florida. Nobody's going to amend the murder statute. Right. And, and he was right. And we worked on it. So what we ended up doing is preparing it in a way where we amend the juvenile sentencing statute because here in florida they have a yo statute that certain offenses if you're any like a juvenile up to the age of 24 you can get what's called a yo sentence okay and it's a split sentence of no more than six years where you spend a portion of your time incarcerated and a portion of your time under community control usually they do four in and two out when they give somebody a yo sentence and since we already had that statute i'm approaching this from an aspect of of just adding an amendment to that with this bill. And essentially this bill is my story. Okay. You, you take a, a, 
a minor or a young adult, and we have the brain science to back it up. Um, and, you know, a little fun fact on that, the U.S. Supreme Court, when they made the ruling in Graham, and they talked about that brain science, they talked about the frontal lobes not being fully developed. They talked about juveniles being categorically different than their adult counterparts. That brain science really comes from when um, the Obama administration passed the health care overhaul law. Ah. And they said that they could keep their children on their health insurance till they were 26 years old. You remember so that? So that's where the 26 comes from is right that, there. Right there. So, so I, I, I was just obsessing about this. I'm like, okay, I know the history of this. I worked on, um, I had the pleasure while I was in prison of working with the Ninth Judicial Public Defender's Office on all of the Graham and Miller cases from prison. Okay. And got the opportunity to work with an amazing attorney named Michelle Yard, who went on to be a federal public defender. Now she's in private practice, huge heart, amazing attorney. She goes the extra mile for everybody. Um, but we were talking about it and talking about it. So we know the history really well. And so it starts there. The U.S. Supreme Court had to look at the overall Health Care Act from the Obama administration because there were so many lawsuits on it and everything. So they knew the brain science was there. So now here comes Graham versus Florida. And they're looking at this and they're like, well, you know what? Over here, we're applying this. So over here, we should apply it as an Eighth Amendment violation against cruel and unusual punishment to sentence a juvenile to life without parole for a non-homicide offense. And they give a whole breakdown of the brain science. Okay. But they stopped at 18. And so it's, it's like, okay, well, you're stopping at 18 for the criminal side, but on the civil side, on the healthcare side, it can go to the age of 26. Right. And, and the standards in these are both different, you know, cr criminal law, it's beyond reasonable doubt, civil law, it's a some law standard, you know, some doubt. So there, there's some differences there. But as I got to thinking about this, I'm like, well, I was 19. I was still a dumbass kid. I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> I was making irrational decisions every day of my life. Yeah. You know, so I wrote this bill that oh and here's here's another thing judges will look at a case and they'll see a co-defendant who is a minor participant and they'll say son i wish i did not have to do this but i'm bound ah. by the statute i have no choice but to sentence you to life without parole right and i looked at him like okay so I wanted to put a bill together that would make it where judges have some discretion and people who were minor participants who didn't actually kill, participate in kill, or be a major participant in, in the actual felony that results in death, that their sentence from the age of 25 and under, their sentence would be capped at 30 years. Right. And, you know, I, I try to look at it from a common sense view. Because you have, you have, you know, the ripple effect. You commit a crime, you throw that pebble in the water and the ripple. Who's it affect first? The victim. Then your family. Then the, vi or the victim's family, your family, the neighborhood, the community, law enforcement. And this ripple effect occurs. And you got all these pebbles going in the water and all these ripples are going on. And all these people are affected by this. And it makes for a fractured community. It makes right. for a community where... 
most of the time, not all the time, the, the family of the defendant, like my son wouldn't do that. It didn't happen. And they're in denial, you know, but then you have to look at the other side of it where the victim's family is suffering this loss. So you take somebody who participates in this, but wasn't the actual perpetrator who committed the crime. The judge now has a discretion to sentence him from 30 under. I like that. And, and, and I, I, I think it makes sense. Some of the senators who have read it and we're trying to get a number on it right now and get it up in the next legislative session here in Florida and get it pushed. Um, they like it. It makes sense. Everybody's seen a kid. And my mom used to tell me this when I was a, a little kid, be careful who you hang out with. You know, be careful who you hang out with because they could go do something and you could be responsible. Right. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's just, it's, it just blows my mind how they can do this. There's a case I'm working on with the innocent project right now where a young man was already detained 10 minutes in the back of the cop car, the crime stopped. There's a nexus. There's a contemporaneous break in the crime. One defendant's detained. His co-defendant got away, jumped in the car, runs and ends up killing a pedestrian. Oh, wow. They charged the guy in the cop car with felony murder. And he's a, he's, he's a minor. Right. And it's, it's, I get it. Passions flare. People are angry, but this kid was the, the, the initial crime had already stopped. It, that's over this, him fleeing and elude the cops. That's a whole nother crime on his right. own. Right. You know, that's, and, and like, you know, we have stand your ground here in Florida. And when somebody raises stand their ground, if there's a, a contemporaneous break in the initial assault and there's a break and you have a minute, a second to rationalize it, it no longer works. Right. So it's, it's kind of like double standards. I see I you agree know, with you. to, I agree to with you. put this kid in a cop car, he's handcuffed, he's going to jail for this felony and his buddy does this. And, you know, so that's, that's, I guess what the, the foundation of this bill is about, you know, giving, one, giving judges an option. Two, still holding somebody responsible. Because like I said, I have to live with the fact that I drove somebody somewhere that resulted in a death. Right. That, that's my reality I live with every day. And I think that's one of the reasons that I, I strive so hard. You know, because I know for me, I have to go that extra mile. I have to put forth more effort because of my past and because of what I've done and because of what I've been involved in, I, I get up every day and I ask myself, do I love what I'm doing? And you and I talked about this briefly yesterday, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of like getting in a transition period because I want to do more, more work like this, where I think I can be more effective to affect change right. and help people. Uh, right in motions, it's it's great, but you got to have thick skin to work in the post conviction realm because right. the the win loss ratio is way higher on the loss side. And telling somebody's mom or wife, you know, this firm charges this much money, and me doing this for so long, it's like, even though the law is on our side, and I'm a little jaded because the law was on my side, and they tried to send me back. Right. 
you know, right. so it's, it's, it's something that I I'm really passionate about right now in my life. And fortunately no, I, I get, get to it, work man. with NYU school of law and a lot of amazing people that want to see this change. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I truly do. And I, I, I really hope that this bill that you've written gets not only the consideration, but the respect that it deserves. I truly do. And, um, I mean, we'll see soon. Yeah, we will. It's coming quick. Yeah, it is. Uh, Let me ask you this, Richard, because, again, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. If someone wants to reach out to you to bring you in to to speak, to Mm -hmm. consult, to uh, to talk about the bill that you've written or any of the other work that you do, and you do a lot of work to help juveniles, to help felons, to help recovery, everything else. Uh, If anyone wants to reach out to you and contact you, how can they go about doing that? My email is Richard S dot M I D K I F F at gmail.com. And I can always be reached by that email. Richard or, S is in Sam. S is in Sam. Okay. So Richard S dot Midkiff M I D K I F F at gmail.com. Yes. Okay. Richard, again, I, I thank you so much for coming on the show. Please, everyone who's paying attention, who's, who's listening then, Richard Midkiff is, again, he is a remarkable story. He truly is. He's someone that uh, found a way to rehabilitate himself. He, took, he made the decision to do that, and he lives his life like that every single day. Not only does he do that, but he works hard every day to help individuals who are in need of help. Um, Richard, thank you so much for coming on on the show again. I'm going to go ahead and close things out. My pleasure. I hope you, your team, and everybody out there has a great holiday season and a great 2024. And let's all work to affect some positive change in this world. Amen to that. So this is the Criminal Thoughts Show. And closing things out, Today, I've been paying a lot of attention to the Ethan Crumbly case, and um, it's caused me to reflect on on my years as a juvenile. As you see, Richard Midkiff, he also talked about his years when he was a very young man and some of the mistakes that were made. Um, Ethan Crumbly today is facing life without the possibility of release, and I can't help but to think, and again, it's a terrible crime. It truly is. If I were a parent of one of those children, I would want this person at the very least, locked up for the rest of his life. Make no mistake. I, I know that's what I would want. But I'm also thinking that that this child, because he is, whether we like it or not, he is. I'm thinking that this child deserves, maybe deserves is the wrong word, but this child needs the opportunity to show that he can reform himself. And that's going to take place in prison one way or the other. But if he can reform himself, if he can become a better person, if he can affect that change from behind the fence, does he not deserve, maybe 20, 30 years down the line, does he not deserve the opportunity to show how that change can affect others if he becomes a free person? Because I look at someone like Richard Midkiff, The man was sentenced to 38 years. He was very fortunate that he was able to get out after 23 years. And today he affects that change. Today he takes the the life that he had and the experience that he has, and he tries to help every single day to make the planet a better place. 
I don't know if Mr. Crumbly has that same type of future, but I do know that maybe we should start looking at giving people the possibility of that happening. Now, that does not mean sentence this, this, this child to prison time because justice is needed. And justice is not a rough talking to, but justice, I don't think, is, is life in prison or um, a death penalty. And he's not facing that in this case. But I don't think that for a child that that is proper. And make no mistake, I don't know what the answer is. I don't. But I am not comfortable at all with giving this child life without parole. My name is Brett Johnson. This is the Criminal Thoughts Show. I want to thank you all for taking the time to tune in. We're going to close it out. We close it out the same way we do every single day. Stay safe out there. Stay secure. Stay vigilant. More importantly, this is the Criminal Thoughts Show. We talk about a lot of crime. At the end of the day, just do the right damn thing. I'm Brett Johnson. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. Until next time.